can't see you folks online, but welcome. Glad to have you with us tonight as well, studying the Gospel of Luke. And I promise you'll be the first reader when we read, but it might be a little while. You remember you had an assignment last week, and I cut you off in the middle of it and said, tonight you'll be the first reader, so we'll wait until we get through the preliminaries. What did John preach? A baptism of repentance for forgiveness. That's what he preached. You remember some of the things he said? Welcoming everyone to his sermons. What did he call them? Some of them. Brood of vipers. Colorful language. Hard, hard to miss that. Hard to forget that. That's pretty memorable. If you went to hear a sermon and you were called a brood of vipers or heard somebody called a brood of vipers, you'd probably remember that. But his whole point was to get people to repent. You remember what Malachi said in Malachi chapter 4? He's going to do what about the hearts of the fathers and the hearts of the children? He's going to turn them back to one another. And that's what John was trying to do through this. I don't know if he was conscious of that, but he came in the spirit and power of some prophet. Who was that prophet? Spirit and power of Elijah. And so this was his message, or this was his work. One of them, anyway. He also said there's wrath coming. Remember when he called those guys brood of vipers? And this is, this is in chapter, let's see here, chapter 2, is it? No, no. Chapter 3, down at verse 10. Oh, I'm getting ahead of myself here. Verse 7. He began saying to the crowds who were going out to be baptized by him, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? So he's preaching a baptism of repentance, but he's also saying there's wrath coming and asking them, Who warned you to flee from the wrath that is to come? And he doesn't specify, he doesn't get specific here about the wrath to come. But then he says this The axe is laid to the root of the trees. Is that the next one? Oh, okay, we're not to that part yet. I'm getting ahead of myself. So you've got to be more than a child of Abraham. Verse 8, bear fruits in keeping with repentance and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham for our father. What does that mean if they were to say we have Abraham as our father? What was the basis of that statement? What's that? Yeah, we're, we're the chosen people. We're children of Abraham, so we've got a, we've got a write-in ticket. And John says, don't you think that's the way it is with God? you got to be more than a child of Abraham. And to me, there's a, there's a hint of the gospel that is coming for all people. It's not just for the children of Abraham in the sense he's talking about it here. But in another sense, it is for all the children of Abraham. Because when Paul writes to the churches of Galatia, that's what he says. By faith, you are all children of Abraham because we have the faith of Abraham. That's, that's two different sides of the coin regarding Abraham, but that was part of John's message. Here it is. The axe is laid to the root of the trees. What does that mean? What kind of a point in a sermon is that? In other words, there are some things that need to change. You got things growing that shouldn't be growing, things God has never planted. Who were Jesus' worst critics? 
His, his own people, but even among his own people, who was it? It was the spiritual religious leaders, those who had ideas about God that were so far gone that John's preaching had this element to it. The axe is laid to the root of the tree. Some of the stuff that you guys have been planting is going to be pulled up. He also taught them to share with those who do not have. Tax collectors came to him and said, what, what do we do as tax collectors? Who were people who were collecting taxes, collecting taxes for? For the Romans. And what did John tell them? Stop collecting taxes, you dirty traitors. Is that what he told them? He didn't. He said, don't collect any more than you're supposed to. Whatever you've been told to collect, collect that and no more. Why would they collect more? Put it in their own pockets. So they are coming to John saying, John, we're hearing you. We want to respond. What do we do? And John says, collect the taxes, but don't collect any more than you're supposed to. Soldiers came to him. What are we supposed to do? He said, don't abuse anybody. And then he said this, be content with your wages. Now, any of us who've been in the military know there's one fun thing to do in the military. What is it? Complain. A grumbling troop is a happy troop. You got to have something to complain about. The, yeah, really. <laughs> it's that's that's the esprit de corps, the spirit of the corps. Complain about things, and John is saying, be fair to people. If you've got a coat and somebody else, do you share one of your coats with him? If you've got food and they don't have food, this is what he taught. You share with them. It just sounds exactly like the things that Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount. You guys that collect the taxes, don't collect any more than what you're supposed to. Just just do that. You guys that are soldiers, don't abuse anybody with your power as soldiers. What's the whole point of soldiers in the first place? Isn't it to protect something? That's why we have a military, to protect the nation, to preserve our freedom, at least in this country. As a matter of fact, when you go back and you look, it, it, it's interesting. Our freedom, uh, our, our, our history as a nation. The founding fathers did not want a military. Why? That was what Britain used to oppress them. So, you know, if we have a standing army, we, we better write in another amendment. What was that other amendment they wrote in? Now, this is American history, but it has to do with this. The Second Amendment. What's the Second Amendment all about? We're going to give the people the right to keep and bear arms. And the whole point of that was not so we could go deer hunting. The whole point of that was so if the government ever decides to oppress us, we'll have the means to stop them. That's what the Second Amendment's all about. So when the political things start going uh, and somebody says, oh, you just want that Second Amendment so you can hunt deer and stuff. No, they don't know history. History is all about that Second Amendment being so that we can defend ourselves. And that's the whole point of soldiering in the first place. You read Romans 13 where Paul writes that the church in Rome, of all places, and he says, governments are the ones who are ordained by God to bear the sword for the punishment of those who do evil. And so it's interesting to me that John, the Baptist, who didn't pull any punches, did not tell the soldiers, you need to stop being soldiers. You need to lay your weapons down. That's not what he said. He said, don't abuse anybody inappropriately and be content with what you're being paid to be a soldier. Be fair in your dealings with others. 
and there's one coming after me. What do you say about that one coming after him? I'm not fit to untie his shoes. His name is from everlasting to everlasting. That's what John preached, among other things. But this is what Luke was covering there in chapter 3. All right. What's next? Take a look at 3, 21 to 22. Jamie read this for us last week. And we'll talk about it a little bit here. And, and then when we when we proceed with our next reading, I'll have you start here, Jamie, and read this. And then I've, I've got it written down so you can see it. But then we'll go into chapter 4. But what it says here is when all the people were baptized by John, John the baptizer, Jesus was also baptized. And while he was praying, heaven was opened. So you get the picture. There's John and there's Jesus. Mark tells us about this in the very first chapter of his gospel. And they're, they're in the water. John baptizes Jesus and he comes up out of the water. And what's he do? He prays. What happens while he's praying? It says the Holy Spirit descended upon him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came out of heaven. You're my beloved son. In you, I'm well pleased. This, this is where you see all three of the Godhead. And it's as if God is saying, I want you to put this in there, Luke, and told Mark to do the same thing. So that when people read this, there will see there's really three of us. Jesus, the word in the flesh, coming up out of the waters of baptism, praying to the Father. The Father sends the Spirit down in the form of a dove. And as the Spirit is descending, you hear the voice from heaven. This is my Son. So we got all three of them here. The Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. All three persons of what we call the Godhead or the Trinity. All right. And then right after that, we've got the genealogy. Let's talk a little bit about that genealogy. Luke's, as you can see, Starts with Joseph and goes all the way back to Adam. Now, if you read Matthews, he starts with Abraham and goes up to Joseph. And there are some things about these two genealogies, especially Luke's, I want us to consider tonight. They diverge at the point of David's two sons, Solomon and Nathan. So, Joseph can't be from both of those families. He can't be from the line of Solomon and the line of Nathan. Mary can't be from both. So, what do you suppose we're being shown in these two genealogies? Seems to me we're being shown the line of Joseph and the line of Mary. Which one is which? I don't know. I know there may be some who say they think they know and they may know, but I don't think they know, no. They might only think they know. But there's nothing conclusive about which one is which. It's interesting. And Luke doesn't make any extra commentary about that. So why does you think, and I'm asking why do you think, because Luke doesn't say, why does he go all the way back to Adam when Matthew goes from Abraham up to, to Joseph? 
Why in the world would Luke do that, go all the way back to Adam? And I'm asking, not having a, a fixed answer, I've got my own couple of ideas, but there's no fixed answer because Luke didn't make commentary on that, and as far as I know, neither did any other inspired writer. But by the way, what does a genealogy do in the first place? It shows a family line. And Jesus' family line goes back to whom? Initially, to David. The prophecy was to David. I'm going to raise up of your loins someone to sit on the throne. And he wasn't talking about Solomon, who did sit on the throne after David, or any of the other kings who were from David's line. He's talking about Jesus. That's what that prophecy was all about. And so these genealogies show him going back to David, whether it's through Joseph's line or Mary's line. Yes? I just thought of this because it says, um, having investigated everything carefully from the beginning to write to you in consecutive order. And then in verse 5 he says, in the days of Herod. So I was thinking that he was considering the beginning, you know, that the days of Herod was where he decided to begin at, so he was okay. calling at the beginning. But if you're asking why did he start from Adam, well, that kind of he's going to start. And he, we know this is a book about being investigating, being thorough, and being consecutive. Yes. So I, I mean, I would assume. See, I, I think the same thing. Thorough. When he starts to tell us about Jesus in the gospel, who's he really start with in the gospel? He, he really starts with John, but he doesn't really start with John. Who's he start with? Zacharias, he, he goes back, just like he says, I'm going to give you these things in chronological order. There's an order to it, and he's going back to a certain point. And he does that with John, starting with his parents, Zacharias and Elizabeth. Then he gives us John, tells us about John's birth and John's ministry and how Jesus came to John to be baptized. Jamie? No, it doesn't go through Solomon. It goes through Nathan. Right. So it comes to David. So where are you saying that it's written that it goes, that Jesus' lineage goes through Solomon to David? If I said that, I said it in error. It was on your previous slide. They diverge with David's sons, Nathan and Solomon. So David has Solomon and Nathan in one of the family lines, whether it's Joseph's or Mary's, I don't know comes through Solomon, and the other one comes through Nathan. Right. My question was, so in, in Matthew's lineage, mm-hmm. it's through Solomon to David, and then in Luke's lineage, it shows Nathan to David. Right. So even, even though we don't know which one's which. Right. Okay. Yeah. You, you might think, well, Matthew was writing to a Jewish audience, and the way the Jews did it, they always did the father and, and gave the father credit, but... Not necessarily. And I think there's reason to believe, and, and this is one of those things, we're never going to get to the bottom of it, but I think it's interesting to the, the things I've got to, to tell you about, maybe I just tell you about them and stop. Yeah. Hey, there's the question, and we don't know the answer to it. I don't have the answer to it. You might. Let me know if you do. Nobody seems to have a definitive answer to, to either one of those questions, whether why he goes back to Adam or or which one is which for Mary or Joseph, but they diverge at Solomon's sons, Nathan and Solomon, and that's what we got. Here's possibilities. 
Maybe Luke goes back to Adam, which would be from his day, 4,000 years back to the day of creation, to connect God with the promise concerning the seed of woman in Genesis 3.15. Have you read that recently? You can go back to Genesis 3.15. This is the serpent tempts Eve and she falls for it. She eats the fruit. She gives it to Adam and he eats of it. And so God shows up and he starts saying, all right, here's what's going to happen as a result of this. He says to the serpent in verse 14, because you've done this, cursed are you more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field on your belly. You'll go and dust you'll eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity, that's strife, that's hatred, that's variance, between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. Now, who's this pronouncement against? It's against Satan. Who does it involve? It involves the woman. He doesn't say between you and Adam's seed, interestingly enough. He says between your seed and her seed. So the seed of woman is in view here in Genesis 3.15. And what Luke may be doing, I'm not saying he's definitely doing this, but he's going back to Adam on one count, and we haven't even got to that part yet. I'll just throw it up there. Going back to Adam to show this isn't just about the children of Abraham. This goes back way before Abraham, which means it's going to include the whole world. What did John say? 3.16, for God so loved the nation of Israel, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. This is all about saving the world through Jesus and so it may be that Luke was giving the genealogy that goes back to Adam so that anybody who read that would know, oh, well, that, that goes back past Abraham. Abraham was the progenitor, the, the guy through whom God brought the Jews into existence. There weren't any Jews when Abraham was alive. <clears throat> there was Abraham. God said, I'm going to give you a son. Sarah heard that. What did she do? Why did she laugh? She was, she was old. She was 65. Have I got that? Well, how old was she when, yeah, Abraham was 100. Yeah, she was 90. So, yeah, she laughed about that. He makes the promise to them. It doesn't fulfill it for 25 years. They're already old when he makes the promise. That's the way God does stuff all the time. Don't, don't get in a hurry with God. Who's that child? It's Isaac. He has a boy. What's his boy? Who's Isaac's son? Jacob. What's his name changed to by the angel? Israel. And then he has the boys, and that's where the Jews come in to being. They didn't exist until then. So Adam is giving a genealogy for Jesus, or Luke is giving a genealogy for Jesus that goes all the way back to Adam, showing it's not just about the Jewish folks. It's about everybody. But maybe also he's, he's letting us in on the fact this is God fulfilling his promise that through the seed of woman, he's going to bruise Satan's head. And that's exactly what Jesus did. By the way, did Luke have any genes from Joseph? Joseph? 
I don't even know what I'm talking about. Did Jesus have any genes? Yeah, he got them at the gap. Did Jesus have any genes from Joseph? He did not. Did he have any genes from Mary? He should have. Because that which is in her was of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit caused that life to start inside her. He was fully human, but he was fully human from Mary. He wasn't fully human from Joseph. And so I I see in this the very good possibility that God is fulfilling this promise that he made 4,000 years earlier. The seed of woman is going to bruise your head, Satan. It's coming. took 4,000 years. And I don't know. The good Lord might be in heaven going, Marty, Marty, Marty. That, that's not it, brother, but just keep on. You'll, you'll get to something that's worthwhile here in a little bit. I, I don't know, but I'm, I'm seeing this. Now. Well, you know, that fits. That makes sense. And in the, in the grand scheme of things, I, I just wonder, and this was a thought I had. Maybe I shouldn't tell you, but this is a thought I had. That it's not just us who are looking into the Holy Scriptures. Remember what Peter said? He talked about the prophets writing down their prophecies. And they were things into which angels longed to look. And I have to wonder if some of this that's in here isn't for the devil himself to read and say, well, yeah, he made that promise. 4,000 years later, he fulfilled it just exactly like he said he would. And the angels are saying, look what God did. He doesn't care about time. He cares about fulfillment. He cares about reliability. That, that's what God is all about. So just, just some things to consider. And I, I confess, I used to read these genealogies and think, oh, great. i got to pronounce all those names. What are they even in here for? I don't think that anymore. These, these genealogies are profoundly important. So any, any question about any of this, any observations, any commentary? All right, let's move on then. What's next? Readings. Jamie, if you'll pick it up. And uh, I wanted you to read chapter 3, 22 and 21 just, just to kind of keep it in context. And, of course, what she'll be doing is skipping the genealogy after she finishes verse 22 and jumping right into chapter 4 and reading the first 13 verses. And instead of reading uh, 14 through 30 now, we'll just read the first 13 and, and talk about that before our time is gone. All right, Jamie. When all the people were baptized, it came to pass that Jesus also baptized. And while he prayed, the heaven was opened. And the Holy Spirit descended in bodily form like a dove upon him. And a voice came from heaven and said, You are my beloved Son. In you I am well pleased. Now chapter 4. Yes. Then Jesus, being filled with the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, being tempted for forty days by the devil. And in those days he ate nothing, and afterward, when they had ended, he was hungry. And the devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. But Jesus answered him, saying, it is, is it not written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God? Then the devil, taking him up to a high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. 
How long has it been since we've actually heard anything from Jesus in Luke's gospel? How old was Jesus when we previously heard from him? He was 12. And what did he say? What did he tell his mom when they asked, what are you doing here worrying us to death at the temple? What did he say? Don't you know i got to be about my father's business? And he's just getting ready to set up shop right here. Full of the Holy Spirit. Now why does it say that? I'm not asking because I know. I'm asking because Luke is is putting this down and the Holy Spirit is saying, you put that down. Jesus was full of me. And wouldn't you think Jesus being God would always be full of the Holy Spirit? But it's like that's a point that's supposed to be made for us. Full of the Holy Spirit. He returned from the Jordan. And was led around by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. 40 days. What did he do? He fasted. I'm, I'm just curious. Is there anyone in here who has fasted? Uh, if you don't want to divulge this, that's okay. That's a private thing. But if, if you've fasted longer than a week, I'd like to see your hand. All right. There's one. All right. I did a week, too. Long time ago. What's that? Voluntarily. I was curious. I read this stuff and I thought, what what would it be like to just go without food? And it was a question of, do I have enough rule over my body? I was young. I was motivated. I didn't have 27 pounds to lose. (laughs) But it was an experience. And I remember thinking at the end of that seven days, 40 days? How did he survive? Are there other things you think about with regard to Jesus? For example, how did he not just call down lightning to kill some of those guys? Or at least knock an eye out or something. He didn't ever do that. He never responded the way we would think another human being would respond. Because 
The first thing chapter 4 says addresses that. He was full of the Holy Spirit, and that's not the way the Holy Spirit works. Right. It's also power, but under control, and submission to God and God's plan for us. I mean, it's just you, you see a little piece here and piece there, but I can't comprehend all of it. I can just try to right. think that I can. And about that time, I think I got a handle on it. I realize I just can't comprehend God. You know? I can't even comprehend algebra. How are we going to comprehend God, Bobby? It's uh, all the way through with Christ. We see him going as far as he can go. Uh-huh. Whatever he did, it was always out there. When, uh, when he was in the desert 40 days, and I, I don't know if it's true, and I carry probably the correct when you're done, but I've heard that 40 days is about all your body will allow you Right. To go without food, besides being uh, intravenously given to you to bring you back from that extreme. So he goes to the extreme there, he goes to the extreme on the cross, he goes to the extreme on his uh, persecution, where he's, he's whipped and he, and he still doesn't do anything. They beat him in the face and spit on him. He still goes to all those things. I would have trouble with Just what they spit on me. I've been doing that thing. Right. But he showed us that he can make us. And that's where I And that's what we're coming to on the further pages of this gospel. But this is where it starts. And to me, we're seeing what we're being presented as a joint venture. What? What is said to Jesus or about Jesus when he comes up out of the water? This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Who else do we see there? The Holy Spirit descends in the form of a dove. And here the Holy Spirit is taking him up into the wilderness and he's being tempted. And what does he rely on to resist the temptation each time? Yes. So to me, that I, I, everything you just said, no, no disagreement, but to me, him being a Jew and him coming to the Jewish people, and God, you know, they've got the law and the prophets, you know, and then God's saying, and this is a big time, here you is. I mean, you're like, we've got all this over here, and God is showing them Right. That's a pivotal moment. And we're coming to a declaration of his in the latter part of chapter 4 when he's in his own hometown of Nazareth and he's in the synagogue and he stands up to read and what do they hand him but the scroll of Isaiah and he reads from the 61st chapter of Isaiah and, and then he says after reading it, this day this scripture is fulfilled in your ears. What's the 61st chapter of Isaiah about? It's all about the coming Messiah, what he's going to do when he's there. And Jesus reads it before them and says, I'm the guy. I'm the guy. And what do they do? They try to kill him. 
<laughs> right there in his own hometown. That you can't say that in front of us. Well, what if it's the truth? So his ministry starts with him showing absolute control over his flesh. And while he's in a, I, I don't know what it would be like to go 40 days without food. But if you had the power to say to some stones, turn into bread, would that be a temptation to you? If you had that power. So you think, I, I just think, wow, what if I could do that? 40 days, that's long enough, isn't it? Isn't that enough of a sacrifice? 40 days? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to put some ham in that bread. It's going to have some sausage and a little gravy on the side. Maybe some potato chips. They haven't invented those yet, but I know about them. No, none of that. And every, every time he was tempted to turn the stones to bread or to cast himself down from the pinnacle of the temple or to take charge over all the kingdoms of the world, what did he do? How did he respond? How did he resist? He said, it's written. And then he, he knew the context of all those passages, which the devil tried to use scripture as well. Oh, it's written of you. They'll, they'll keep you from casting your, dashing your foot against the stone. Well, Jesus knew better, of course. And so he said, it's also written, you won't tempt the Lord your God. All of that stuff, all that stuff, that's, <clears throat> I read this and I marvel at his control and his knowledge of the word and his use of the word. And I think in all of this, he's setting a pattern for us. This is the way it works. Throughout your life, the devil is going to tempt you. He's going to attack you. He's going to do everything he can to gain control over you. It goes right back to Genesis chapter 3 where God told God, told Cain, sin is waiting at the door and it desires to master you. And Cain had the opportunity to make his choice. And we're seeing that Jesus has made his choice. He's 40 days without food and he doesn't turn the stones to bread. He can cast himself down and be borne up by the angels. How cool would that be? But he doesn't do it. He can take charge of all the nations of the world. And I want you to think about this. If Jesus didn't want to do those things, would they have been temptations They would not have been temptations. It's only a temptation if it's something you want to do. When I read this, I think Jesus wanted to turn those stones to bread. He had the power to do it. He could have done it. He wanted to throw himself off the temple. There's a part of him that did. Because if he didn't, it wouldn't be a temptation. Bobby? Yeah. 
And that's, that's from 1 John chapter 2, where John says, the lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh, boastful pride of life. You see that right here in all three of these temptations. Where else do you see it, by the way? You see it in Genesis chapter 3, when the devil is, is showing Eve the fruit, and she's looking at it, and she, oh, it looks, it's pleasant to the eyes. It looks like it's good for food. Oh, it'll make me wise. Lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh, boastful pride of life. It's all right there. Same thing you and I face. And so when the Hebrew writer is talking about Jesus, he talks about Jesus tempted in all points like as we are, yet without sin. And that tells me Jesus wanted to do this stuff. If he didn't want to do it, it wouldn't have been a temptation. Are you ever faced with some kind of sin, but you don't care anything about doing that? Somebody says, oh, Marty, I'll offer you all the booze you can drink. Give me a $10,000 Bass Pro card now. There's a temptation. I might fall for that. (laughs) It's different for all of us. But Jesus wanted these things or it wouldn't have been a temptation. And to me, that speaks to me. All right. He can relate to Marty Kessler. Dina. Right. So there was much more than just this that he went through. And also says he, he's going to come back and he's more. Right. Well, to me, whenever it says until he returns to the appointed time, that's where Jesus betrayed him. Wouldn't that be the appointed time? That's probably the most appointed time because that's the point at which the bruising takes place that was mentioned by God in Genesis chapter 3. That's where Jesus is bruised on the heel and Satan's bruised on the head. That's where it all comes to, to fruition. Lise? Right. So you have wanted to prove that he was the son of God. That was the biggest temptation, I'm sure. And that's the way it comes at us, isn't it? It's like you never expected to be hit with that. Uh, there's nobody sneakier than the devil. He's the sneakiest sneaky that there is. And you, perhaps you like me, remember a time when you when you sinned because you responded to something that came at you out of the blue and, and you just said or did something, what do we call it, a knee-jerk reaction? And and you still think about how stupid that was. And Jesus didn't fall for it. However, he was approached by Satan. Since you're the son of man, make these stones into bread. Didn't fall for it. What else happened in those 40 days? We're, we're clueless. We're given these three so that we can at least know this. But he was tempted. And those temptations... Uh, the Hebrew writer mentions he can relate to you and to me. He's, he's a high priest who's borne the temptation, and yet he's done it without sin. 
That's why he can be a sacrifice for my sin and your sin, because he doesn't have any sin to answer for. But he understands the temptation. And isn't that really what we want? Don't you want to be understood? You're not looking to be justified. You're not looking for God to go down and say, oh, it's okay, Marty, your, your sin is okay, your, your weakness, it's no big deal. No, you just want God to say, I understand why that's a problem for you. I, I understand, I see that, that makes sense to me. I see the way you've been brought up and all the experiences you've had in your life. He knows everything that goes into me and he knows why I believe and act and speak, think the way I do. And he knows the same thing about you and he understands. That's where the grace comes from. He understands and he still says, man, I I love you. I know you're a doofus. But you're a doofus I want with me. I want people to see that this is the way my love is. This isn't about you being good, Marty. This is about me being good. This isn't about you being whatever. This is about me being gracious and forgiving and loving and kind. And that's, that's what we see in God all the time. just trying to understand what a little bit I keep my part said earlier when I see my little grandson you know, I see all this in here or some of the students that I talk, I talk and I see all the potential and what they can be and they don't see that they're just consumed by the world and all the requirements of what mom and dad told them school and lessons they don't see what you see how, how they've been blessed and, and all the talent that they've got you know, they don't right. see that and God sees that, and it's like you said, I want you with me. You know, I see in you what you don't see. And right. I'm, I'm willing to, and then of course you give us a plan of salvation. And at the same time, he's not blind to the need we have for discipline. I've got children, and I've got grandchildren now, thank God. And sometimes I'm with my little grandchildren, and they're just as cute as they could be, but occasionally there'll be something they don't want to do. And I say, we're not having that. It's a Barney Fife thing. What did Barney Fife say? Nip it. Nip it in the bud. And that, that's what you do. Because it's, it's not for my welfare. It's for their welfare. And God is looking at me and you and saying, you need me to discipline you. You need me to help you be straightened out. Because you've got a weakness and a temptation that, that could be your downfall and your destruction. And I'm not going to let that happen. I'm going to train you and discipline you. And if I have to make your life hard to do that, I'm going to make your life hard. And it's happening to Jesus, and he hadn't even done anything wrong. Back to the Hebrew writer again, chapter 5, it's, it says this, and I have, still haven't figured this out. The Hebrew writer said that Jesus learned obedience through the things which he suffered. When you get that figured out, you come talk to me. Because how does God learn? But that's what the writer said. The Holy Spirit said, put it down. He learned obedience through the things which he suffered. And this is some of it. And it's going to be on the rest of the pages of the gospel when he's confronted by these. Right. Yeah. Just like a sunrise or a sunset. You look at that, you go, wow. But you can't, everything that means about God, you, you just can't, you can't get it. Shannon, you had your hand up a long time ago, brother. Well, you kind of answered it there, I think. When he gives the uh, Lord's Prayer, 
part of it says, lead us not into temptation. But it seems like temptation is kind of like spiritual exercise. It's, you have to go through it to get stronger. It's kind of like lifting weights or whatever. It makes you sore and you hurt. But in the end, it benefits you. Right. There's... Like what Jesus went through to make himself more holy. And then what you just, you kind of answered it there. But don't lead us into something that's going to be our downfall. Right. There's, there's testing and there's temptation. The difference is that a test is to give you the opportunity to do something good. Just like when you're in school and the teacher gives you a test. That's for your opportunity to put down some right answers. Wow. <laughs> But a temptation is when somebody's trying to get you to do something that's wrong. And God will test us. He will always test us because we need that. We need to be pushed. I, I still like the example of a, of a coach. When you sign on to play any kind of sports team, the coach does not say, here's a box of donuts and a quart of chocolate milk. Go watch some TV. And, and uh, No. He says, get your gear on. We're going to get out to the course. You're going to run laps going to do some duck walking, going to do whatever, because you, you've got to be trained. If you want to be an efficient athlete, you've got to be trained. And that's, that's the way we are as his children. He doesn't leave us on our own. Has there been a bell? Thank you. I... <laughs> Sometimes I miss bells. Appreciate you guys. I love you. We're out of time. Out of time.